2: Ah, hello and welcome to the third in a special edition of the TIFO Football Podcast mini-series, TIFO Talks. I'm here with a uh, host of the podcast. It's Jonathan McKenzie. Hi, John. Hello. Who are you speaking to today? Today I am... Oh, they've s- been good so far, haven't they? But who's it today, though?
0: Today I'm speaking to James Montague.
2: Ah, the one and only. The one and only. I believe James Montague was once described as the Indiana Jones of mm. football writing. Yeah?
0: Yeah, we talked about that on, on the episode. Great. Was, was that... Was that was that an Easter egg there for me?
2: No, I just knew that. Okay. I haven't listened to the episode. Well, well, we talk about that at the beginning of the episode. Right. Okay, fine. Well, I hope he's brought his hat or something. Mm. Yeah. What else do you talk about?
0: We talked about his new book. Well, I say his new book. It's an old book that he has re-released called mm. When Friday Comes.
2: He certainly knows how to squeeze money out of people, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah,
0: that's true. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I feel as though I've been inculcated in your
2: joke. No, it's fine. Your joke James here. and I are friends. Don't okay. worry. That's fine. Yeah. He knows I mean it.
0: Please don't hate me, James. Mm. But yeah, we talked about his book, the changes that he's made. But also, we focused on two countries in particular. We focused on Iran, which is obviously interesting from a geopolitical point of view at the moment. Yeah. And also, we talked about Qatar, which is the
2: the host of the World Cup. That's (laughs) right. Yes. Okay. Without further ado, let us enjoy today's episode.
0: Okay. Welcome to TIFO Talks, a podcast on the TIFO Football Podcast Network. I'm John McKenzie and I'm joined today by a man who has been described as the Indiana Jones of football journalism, James Montague. James, how are you? I'm on brand. I've got the TIFO mug. TIFO mug, yeah. This is the camera. Company man. Yeah. (laughs) How do you you feel about being described as the Indiana Jones of football journalism? I hasten to add that is not my...
1: Tagline. I mean, it's it's. Uh, I mean, I suppose it's quite nice, isn't it? I mean, this. I mean, a lot of people mention it. I fell out with the person who said it, though. So, <laughs> so I, f- I feel like I, I can wince a little bit every time I hear it. So that's for another conversation.
0: Is is your job as exciting as Indiana Jones's or is it glamorising?
1: I've often said this, but I mean, I, I'd love to look like a thirty year old like Harrison Ford. But unfortunately, <laughs> so no, it's not so. It's not as glamorous. I mean, it was a very exciting time especially when i was writing when friday comes which is kind of the beginning of everything that started in my life when it comes to journalism and writing and there were you know scrapes and it was very exciting but I, i've had a bit of time to kind of reflect on all of that because obviously with the pandemic it all it all stopped and so my life became quite day to day it was very small i moved to istanbul which is where my partner has a job and it was you know i really enjoyed it and quite a
0: quiet city isn't it Istanbul (laughs) it's a very quiet city
1: very laid back but I mean we live in a quite like nice little area of it but there is a time I think where you can either carry on like that forever or or make that your your life and your identity but you will probably not be able to have a family or a functioning life or really sleep properly and you see that a lot with people especially in, in our line of work or you can or you can step back and i kind of did that and so i don't think i'll ever go back to it as much but then you know then i'd go to i mean i was in italy last week you know interviewing lazio ultras in the curva nord and then you tell people about that, and they're like, My god, that's weird. Now, like, oh, yeah, maybe that is so. <laughs> maybe my level of what's weird or not is kind of different to most people.
0: You're still getting your kicks, then, but still getting them somewhere. I've got some bio here, I'm going to go through. So, James has written for the New York Times, CNN, GQ, The Guardian, World Soccer, etc., etc., etc. I'm sure I'm missing some out as well. And he's also the author of three books so 31 Nil, The Billionaires Club, and the book that we're going to talk about today, When Friday Comes, which has just been released with an four update. books. Sorry, oh, is there another one? Yeah, what's one, did you say? 1312. Oh, I didn't mention, one, yeah, 1312 as well. That's the the last one. one. The last one. But the dust jacket blurb of When Friday Comes reads as follows. For seven years James Montague travelled to every country in the Middle East uncovering stories of the beautiful game's survival and resurgence while the region has often been divided. Football is the Middle East's great uniting thread. So James, how is football the Middle East's great uniting thread?
1: Well, When I first moved to the Middle East, so it was like 2004, it was my first job in journalism, I was quite young and uh, didn't really have a lot of experience. And when I moved there, I mean, everybody has a, you know, obviously I'm I'm an outsider, I'm a foreigner, and everyone has a perception of what, what the Middle East is. And at the time you had Iraq, was falling to pieces in a, in a kind of civil conflict that had been sparked by the Second Gulf War. You had all sorts of conflicts breaking out all across the region. It seemed to be incredibly divisive. There'd be, there were cleavages everywhere that you looked. And when I started looking at football there, this came about completely by accident. It's just, I just loved political football stories. And I kept seeing them wherever I went, like in the local newspapers, I'd see one and it would be like a throwaway story about how the Yemen national team had all failed a drugs test because they'd all been chewing cut, which is this, leaf drug that grows at a certain altitude which is highly addictive and 80% of the population chewed and it completely destroyed the economy and it seemed to me incredibly emblematic of a massive problem that was happening in in Yemen so I'd go to Yemen I'd find out about that and find out about the cat problem through football and so I would end up doing all these these stories and when I said it's the one great unifying thread is that everybody plays football everybody agrees on the rules of football like the base that everybody agrees with is the same and the other thing is that, as well, is that if I had gone into those spaces almost as a, as a foreign correspondent, that can be quite difficult, trying to get into like Dahir, the southern suburb of Beirut, where Hezbollah has its stronghold, where it has its offices. Very difficult to get access there, like to go there and, and really speak to people and, and do that unmolested. But you go as a football writer or go there to ask questions about football or their football team, al Ahed, which is essentially they say not funded, but, you know, really is kind of supported by Hezbollah, all the doors were open to you. It was a completely different experience being a kind of sports writer in the Middle East. And so I saw this, you know, it is a uniting thread, but it was also kind of open door that I don't think I had ever expected to see and to try to understand a place which, you know, I fell in love with and I fell in love with its contradictions, its flaws, but also the incredible kindness that I saw as well across the way. And so, yeah, and football gave me, I think, a pretty unique view on that. I mean, I'm not the first person to do that. I mean, You can see... I mean, there's been some great books like David Winner on on Holland. You can see all sorts of book tour about German football. You know, I mean, even looking back to Simon Cooper's original, you know, the foundational text in this kind of little weird subgenre of football writing that we find ourselves in. This, this is quite and David Goldblatt as well, especially. You know, this is a you know for 20 years people have started to, to think of football as something that's not just a sport but a, a really great mirror on society. And for me, it, it was a fantastic mirror on on mm. on 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 the stories I wanted to tell and that I came across in the Middle East.
0: Yeah, obviously the the, the political is a theme that runs through the whole book. Uh, and You've got a quote from the book itself, actually. So this is you speaking football is politics in the same way. Music is politics or art or film it is an expression of the soul with a tribal beat. And it's played its role in some countries, a vital role in the greatest political upheaval to affect the region since the end of colonial rule. And I think what's so interesting about the book for me is that it's clear that the role that football plays in each region is so different. Mm. And I just wondered what it is about football, do you think, that, that almost allowed it to form the background against which a lot of these political machinations played out? Well, The
1: first time I we went was before the Arab Spring, so 2004 to kind of 2009. You know, I was intense. I was living in the Middle East. I was intensively travelling, and you saw how football was something that was coveted by the autocrats that had been in power for generations, and they wanted to control football because they knew the power of football to rally people, to rally people around a cause, rally around the flag. I mean, Hosni Mubarak was an absolute master of this, of using the Egyptian national team to try to distract from very real problems, bread riots, poverty, increasing, you know, the increasing strictness of the police state that was going on there what happened in the arab spring and i don't think this is unique to the middle east it just happens in places where civil society tends to have been kind of almost totally eradicated or truncated in such a way that it's very difficult to find a place to talk to exchange ideas is that that football terraces and this is a really underthought of idea is that football terraces are a space in civil society and that's what i found in egypt when i first went to egypt in 2007 and by accident i met the founders of the al-akhli ultras which become the Akhlawi. and it's the biggest club in cairo and i see these guys who have been heavily influenced by italian ultra culture they're heavily influenced by english hooligan culture uh, argentine kind of um, banners and you know they start off replicating this kind of scene but because it's also a scene that's very much wanting to stay outside of police control and the police and, you, and it's in a police state suddenly what you're doing is a revolutionary act and suddenly what becomes something that they want to imitate to show a love for their club turns into a space where people firstly air grievances about the police and then air grievances about the government so almost through The government's own sheer stupidity they created the conditions where you had a space in the center of cairo and then in every single stadium in in egypt where tens of thousands of people could organize that were kind of almost completely impossible to control whilst they're together and able to kind of send messages to chant to organize and to get experience ultimately in how to fight authority and how to fight the police so when Tahrir square happened when the revolution happened in egypt who was it that had the wherewithal, who was it that was, you know, that were on the front lines. You know, of course, there were ordinary people there, but as one, you know, ultra told me, you know, we we taught the activists, if they throw a brick at you, throw it back. If they run at you, this is when you run away. This is when you attack. And this was a space that you often saw replicated across. I mean, not exactly the same kind of conditions. I mean, they're they're slightly different in each place, but the idea of the terrace, of of the curver as this reflection of of unhappiness and a place to air grievances and a civil society space, it's very obvious to me and you know, the Middle East was the first place where I saw that. Not only, you know, just people, you know, angrily telling that they're upset with the government of the day or whatever, but it actually leading to, to real, real change. Mm.
0: It's worth talking as well about the fact that states use football as well. I mean, Iran is a great example of that, right? In, in the early 1900s, you see Reza Shah and Pahlavi Shah both using football as, as something which, which sort of fits in with their ideas of modernisation. And then in 79 you get the revolution and, and the, the, the Iranian state becomes much more where it becomes Islamis- islamicized Islamized, and and yet obviously as you're saying, like football is used as a means of revolting for the people in, in, in the terraces, but it's also very much the the state are aware of the role of football. Oh yeah.
1: F- f- I mean dictators are dictators are addicted to football. It's catnip to them. They love it right because it definitely excites the same part of the brain that an authoritarian leader wants to excite that type of populism right that kind of to be able to rally people around like a single cause or a single moment the problem is that often they can't control it and it does get out of control and prime example again is egypt but before the revolution i went to egypt algeria which is the famous world cup qualifier that ended up i mean it was weeks of riots essentially across egypt and algeria and Egypt had the best team in Africa, but hadn't qualified for a World Cup since 1990. And Hosni Mubarak and his sons threw themselves behind the national team. And the pro-government press hyped up a kind of anti-Algerian kind of mania, almost, in a way to secure qualification for the World Cup, which they would then see as uh, this incredibly positive thing for the country and a positive thing for them, and also a platform to basically... Gamal Mubarak was at the front of this, and he was seen as this is a chance for him to come out as a successor to Mubarak, uh, to Hosni Mubarak. And so, unfortunately, they they made it so bad, they made it they made the, the tension so bad that you know people rioted, and it created this awful situation on the streets. They actually won and got a replay in Sudan, but then got beaten by Algeria. And so, I mean, a lot of people, I. Like, spoke to in Egypt around that time was like, this is the beginning of the end of them. And then, you know, lo and behold, uh, 13 months later, you have you know what happens in Tyria Square so I mean the connection I'm not sure if it's tenuous or not but it shows you that they can play with football they love to have the adulation that football gives them but it also is a is a power that oftentimes they lose control
0: of let's talk about the book in more detail so you've already given us a good sense of why it is you wanted to to write the book but how did the book come about in the first place
1: so I moved to Dubai and I had a job Uh, It was my first job. I couldn't get a job in journalism in England. So I went, you know, went to Dubai. I didn't know where it was really on the map. But I think, I I don't know if I recall this correctly, but I think when I took the job, I thought it was Brunei. (laughs) But anyway, I did my research. I I got the job, I had two weeks to get out there and I got out there and it was just this completely, it was July and it was like Disneyland, but built on like the planet where they're you know mining for spice on Dune. You know, it's just like 90, 100 degrees, 110 degrees every day, completely inhospitable. And it was it was a very difficult environment to kind of go in. It's a very strange place, Dubai, in the UAE in general. And so I'd started off doing political journalism, and I'd started doing a few football stories, and a few political football stories. And I'd go through the FIFA country list, and I'd be like, "What? Palestine has a national team? It's not recognised at the U.N. How does that happen?" And then he looked into the Palestinian national team, and he thought, "Oh wow! Like the struggles of the Palestinian national team to get players from Gaza, to get players from the West Bank, to overcome movement restrictions, just to play these games, you know, under occupation. uh, You know, wow, that's 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 really emblematic of the Palestinian struggle." and so i started because i was working in dubai and i had this it was actually a nightlife and shopping editor so i had this like day job of like doing photo fashion photo shoots almost sometimes and judging djing competitions in the evening and then i would take time off and be like you know what i've just seen that marcel desai is signed for a club in qatar i think i'm gonna i think i'm gonna take the weekend off and go there or i'll take a week off because i'd heard that there's a new a sports centre being opened in Qatar called the Aspire Academy and Pele and Maradona opening. Got, I can't miss that. We'll get to meet, meet Pele. we we'll get to meet Maradona. Or there would be, you know, I'd always wanted to go to Israel and it was, it, then it was impossible to go to Israel because there was no Abraham Cords, there was no thawing of diplomatic relations. So I'd have to fly to Jordan and then take a kind of shared taxi over into the West Bank, past an Israeli border and see the kind of awful conditions that a lot of Palestinians have to be put through if they want to move, leave or, or or come into the West Bank, and then go to Israel, and then you you know, go to, like I don't know, I wanted to go to the big Tel Aviv derby and and uh, understand the kind of left-wing, right-wing dynamics between Beitar Jerusalem and, and Happy World Tel Aviv, which again tells a story of, of Israel that's a bit different to the one of just Israel versus Palestine. And so... It just, I, I was just accumulating these stories and I thought that I could probably put this in a book with a narrative. I mean, the first version of it is essentially me having a breakdown with no money and kind of stumbling through the, the Middle East as a bit of an idiot, like idiot savant, and writing, writing about all these kind of uh, like incredible people that I'd met along the way. And as time went on a lot of the people i met ended up you know playing these incredible roles not just in kind of big events political events that took place in the country but you know in in the arab spring and when the book came out in the first book came out in 2008 you know it came out the first week that sheikh Mansour bought manchester city and i remember getting a phone call from cnn saying like you are literally the only person we found on google that like middle eastern football can you come on and tell us who he is because we don't know who he is no one knew who he was and i mean i lived there so i knew what the dynamic was and there was a massive economic story that was brewing there there was a massive political story there and a massive football story there as well because the middle east has now moved itself to the center of you know it's a it's it's probably the center of power in world football now if you think about the money that's coming from the UAE, qatar and now saudi arabia and so, yes, yeah, so I, I wrote this book and then I updated it again and I, and, and I kept across all these stories because then to me, they're not just stories, right? I mean, I lived this life and I spent a lot of time I was embedded in, in, in these places and, and with, with people who I considered friends and um, who I'd seen, you know, jailed or die along the way. And so, you know, I'd always keep up to date with what, what was going on. So I felt that there was, with the World Cup coming, I felt that there was a need to kind of I know, also put kind of like an end to it, like a stop. Like, this is the final version of it. I can't keep updating this book. And so, of course, the, the big story is Qatar. And I've been going to Qatar since 2005 and seen it grow, seen its reputation grow and then be tarnished. I've seen accusations of corruption. I've met workers in camps, kept in contact with them all these years and seen how this, this story has ebbed and flowed. And, and so, you know, if there was any time for a book like this to come out, in this form then it would have to be before the world cup
0: yeah and we're going to come on to talk about Qatar later on but before we do just one of the things that stands out for me from that answer is just talking about you living through that book you've met people and if you read the book it's not just meeting people who are big in the region, it's meeting normal people. It's meeting handlers who are mm. on the ground, and I just want—it's a—it's a banal point to say, you know, you can't really understand a culture or country without going there. But what what do you think you actually gain by living through those sorts of regions and and, and being able to write off that back of that?
1: There was—I um, was a massive Manic Street Preachers fan when I was a when I was like a teenager, like the full feather boa, eyeliner. I had I had like hair, <laughs> and it was. One of those things about a band like that is they're they're very literate, and so I would there there'll be some iconoclastic quote, and then I'd end, I'd end up reading the book, and then
0: um, if you tolerate this, the children will be next. Well, if you tolerate this, if children will be next. Before is, you know it, you're knowing about the Spanish Revolution.
1: Well, that's exactly the thing because I was I mean I was a big Holy Bible fan. That was my that was my favourite album, and to be honest, like you know, this is my truth. Tell me yours. It's a good album, okay, but, you know, I wouldn't say it's one of my favourites, but if you tolerate this, your children will be next. There's a line in there that like, if I can shoot rabbits, I can shoot fascists. And and I was like, where's that from? And they talked in their interviews about George Orwell and Homage to Catalonia. And so I, I read Homage to Catalonia and that blew my mind because I'd read, you know, journalism that I liked, reportage that I liked, but this was someone who didn't just go in there and follow a story. I mean, they were in it. They were fighting. They believed it. They were absolutely intrinsic to what was going on to them around them and it seemed to me that this was the only way that you could really reflect the the most accurate sense of things if he feared that bullet as much as the person next to him and so it was a transformative thing to read for me because when i started doing journalism it was obvious to me that was the only thing you could do that's the only way you could approach a story like this or a book like this or any story is that if you're not there, and if you don't feel it, if you don't feel the fear, if you don't smell the cordite, if you're not pitch side, if the ball doesn't hit you in the face, then there are lots of forms of writing. But for me, to tell that story, there's only one way I could tell it, and it was through that. And it has led, because of that as well, I think you get, I mean, kudos is the wrong word, but it's one thing picking up a phone and trying to speak to someone but if you're there and you're next to them and you've made the effort and you're talking to them in their language or, or you're trying to talk to them in their language and you know it just means that you build deeper relationships you get much richer kind of stories from people and you know it, in a way it stopped being work it just you know i'm naturally curious about people i love hearing people like I, When even now, when I do radio, like my favorite thing is Vox Pops. Like you ask anyone who's in radio, they can't stand doing Vox Pops. They don't want to meet the public, right? They've gone past that. It's just something you do when you're on a, like when you're doing internship or something. But for me, it was like, this is, this is what it is. If it's not this, then what is it? It's nothing. So in a roundabout way, it was kind of, it was the Manic Street Preachers that got me there (laughs) via Orwell, basically.
2: Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone?
0: The book itself is a series of chapters, each set around a region or country in, in, in the Middle East. I want to talk about two chapters in particular, because there are two threads that I think have come back yeah. more recently. So Iran and, and Qatar. We'll start with Iran. Um, but I think what's interesting about these two is that each country represents a very different relationship to football. So with Iran, you have that the sort of more typical colonised version of football. Um, we talked already about the two Shahs who, who are sort of attempting to to bring Iran into, into a sort of more European configuration, um, and then you have the 1979 revolution, where obviously this thing's turned around. It's, it seems a, a weird one for me because you almost expect that sort of logic to be the other way around, like extreme, mm. an extreme religious state moving then towards modernisation. Obviously, that, that process is probably happening a little bit more now, but interested in your sense of how football has played a role in the politics of Iran.
1: I mean, in the beginning, not much because it got essentially football was stopped because the Iran Iraq war meant that every able bodied man had to go to the front line. This was a.
0: A lot of them died.
1: Yeah, I mean, a ruinous conflict, brutal, almost kind of um, First World War level of uh, barbarity in terms of the numbers killed. I mean, if you look into how the Basiji, which is a kind of religious kind of militia almost of the Ayatollahs, and how they approached minefield clearance, which was essentially running across it because get to to god quicker you know a million people died in that conflict and so it took a few years after that ended in 1988 for iran to even return back to football which is crazy because if you think in the middle east and the development of the middle east and i suppose in terms of of qualification for the world cup which if you look at east and west asia west asia has always been stronger but it's usually the north african arab teams that have qualified and you know iran qualified at the 78 finals embarrassed scotland a little bit had a great team of players and then all of that's gone i mean that all that's destroyed a generation of football is gone and it has to be rebuilt and it's kind of testament to and in iran's a country i love i mean my family who are iranian my i mean i mentioned it in the book my daughter has iranian blood uh, i've been to iran several times it's a fascinating country incredible people It's a testament to their resilience, but also to their complete love of football, that they can rebuild a league under international sanctions and still put together, even whilst being an international pariah, a kind of competitive international football team, probably the best in Asia, one of the best in Asia, qualified again for this World Cup. You know, to to get to the World Cup in 98 and then have that incredible game against the Great Shaitan, where they beat the US 2-1, and then a million people were on the streets of Tehran to celebrate that, where the Ayatollah gave his again gave gave a speech saying, you know, we vanquished. <laughs> I can't remember what the exact words were, but we, we vanquished, no, the great Satan, and this is this is he's felt bitter defeat by your hands or something like that. And it's kind of interesting because, again, within dictatorships, football does provide this space, you know. And when I've been to Iran, what's interesting is that the kind of level of discourse around football is feverish, because I mean, one reason I've come to think that that's the way it is is because that kind of discourse, public discourse in politics, isn't possible, and so it transfers it almost into mm. into the football discourse. And I saw that with the south, like a lot of the Saudi press before. Mohammed bin Salman's kind of soft cultural revolution for all these other problems. I mean, that's one thing that Saudis always tell me is, is a real thing. But when I, I remember watching the Saudi coach, Saudi coaches would get fired mid-tournament all the time, which is quite rare. I, don't, I can't think of another national team that sacks coaches mid-tournament. Can you think? I can think of three occasions where the Saudis have done it. They uh, fired uh, Carlos Pereira. Like he'd won the World Cup in 94 for Brazil. And they fired him midway through the 98 World Cup. And there's one I remember I was in the 2011 Asian Cup uh, in Qatar and Saudi had lost to Syria. And I saw this, uh, I can't remember his name. He was a Portuguese coach, I think. And he was literally being chased through the airport <laughs> departures lounge like he'd murdered someone, you know. And the sound and they were crazy. But it's almost the, the, the sports press is a is a kind of safe catharsis in a way that the political pages aren't or are far more dangerous.
0: I remember there's a there's a story in the book where you talk about the I think it's your first trip to Iran. And you go to the Azadi Stadium, and there's a recognition that you're sort of a Westerner who can comment on things. And, and one of the first questions that's asked to you is like, what do you make of George? W. Yeah. Bush.
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's not. I mean, I. I'm, imagine me and them shared a very similar opinion about him, (laughs) you know, to be honest. But yeah, it was that because, because he's so isolated. I mean, also as a British passport holder, um, British citizen I mean we are little Satan so it's almost impossible for us to get uh, certainly as a journalist I mean I, I managed to get one in in 2018 but when I went the first time I just thought Do you know what I was living in Dubai what's the worst thing that could happen I get deported it's only a couple of hours flight back it'll be fine but as it happened I met this really well connected guy who said his father was a minister in the former Katami reformist government mm-hmm because Ahmadinejad had just come to power, just been elected, and he said he could talk me in, and I just, all right, and he did. He talked me in, and I I was just kind of gadding about Tehran I went skiing. We've got a big ski resort up that the Shah built.
0: Yeah, and, and so the the Shah himself, I think, used to travel to Switzerland. Yeah, I don't
1: know why he should have just gone to the uh, I think Dizin it was, and uh, I, I'd never skied before, and it turns out it's the third highest ski resort in the world, and so I just went to the top of it and just kind of. I basically, <laughs> it, it took me about half a day just to fall down it. It didn't have any didn't have any fences on either side, so I did I, I did that, and I was just and I went and interviewed Ali Dai, who was but then the he was he was still playing for the national team then, and he was the he was. Still Still, the international world record holder for international goals, uh, which was smashed by Ronaldo, I think, last year or the year before. And, you know, looking back at it now, I mean, it, it was just so stupid. I mean, I could have just been arrested at any point. I didn't hide that I was a journalist. I ended up, you know, but again, this is another thing about being a, a kind of football journalist is that. Although I'd never really seen myself as a football journalist, by saying I'm writing about football, people kind of assume you're an idiot. And so like, what damage could you do? And that's also why I think I got access to a lot of the spaces that I probably wouldn't have got before.
0: Yeah. Uh, I've got a quote here from a guy who showed you around Tehran, I believe, called Arash. Yeah. He well, said- I think, I, think he, I've, I checked him out recently. I think he's been banned from Iran now. Oh, wow. Yeah. Hmm. He he said, football is the only place where football let go, and those in power fear the power football has. Football is a threat to their authority. When a million people took to the streets, women were dancing, throwing off their hijabs. The authorities are scared of that, scared of losing control. And football, I think, more recently in Iran has become that sort of touchstone for a form of revolution within Iran, right, in terms of what we're seeing in terms of women football.
1: Yeah. I mean, I went back in 2018, this time with a valid um, journalist (laughs) visa, which is very, which is actually, I had a lot less freedom because you have to have a government minder right it was a very nice chap who followed me around but I mean his job was to literally you know monitor my movements translate my interviews take out the bits that were problematic and Luckily, I recorded them all, and I, he didn't know that my father-in-law's Iranian, so I got him to translate everything. So we got the full translation anyway. But yeah, he kind of follows me around, and the reason I was going was to go and see the Tehran derby between uh, Persepolis and Esteglar like the red, the red-blue derby, Azadi Stadium, packed, hundred, maybe 120, 130,000 people in there.
0: You got the two ayatollahs on either. Got side.
1: the two, okay, got, got the two ayatollahs that the, the the form. Well, I mean, they're both ayatollahs, but yeah, the yeah, you got the uh, Harmony and Katami on on uh, either side. Khomeini and so you've got those and I, and I love that picture I always like, take that picture <laughs> people on
0: the, on the top I well, don't know they? they get to they climb on top of the ball? No, no you I wouldn't do that it'd
1: be highly offensive so but um so but yeah I went there and it's just an incredible thing it's an incredible part of football culture that you don't get to see we think we know everything about football in the world right but like going to watch an Iranian game where there's twenty thousand people at a league game like, if more people actually got to experience that, they'd have a very different view of what Iran is. Mm. And, you know, I turned up, and it turned out Gianni Infantino was there. He'd just been made FIFA president, just won the vote. And so he was there. And I was checking Twitter because I was using a VPN so I could use it because Twitter's banned in Iran. And I saw that there was, I followed this account called uh, Open Stadiums, at Open Stadiums which is a collective of female Iranian activists who bring to people's attention the fact that women are banned from going to Iranian football stadiums. Even though there's no law about it, it's just official law. It's just it's, it's happened that way. And I discovered that there was dozens of women got arrested outside the ground. Some of them dressed as men trying to get in, which was... Uh, I don't know if you've ever watched the film Offside, the Iranian film, which is life imitating art in a way. And so I was like, wow, okay, they've done this with Infantino here. This is a great thing about the derby. Branko Ivankovic was in charge of Persepolis. I'd met him when he was in charge of the national team in 2006. But this is what I've got to do. So I I went out and I tried to find these female activists. And so I contacted open stadiums. And it turned out to be this very clandestine uh this moment where we were we agreed to meet but we didn't want to tell each other what each other looked like just in case anybody was looking or overhearing i had to lose my mind as well like i said oh i don't feel well i'm gonna go back to my hotel he dropped me off my hotel then he left and then i snuck out and went on the metro and got up and met her and eventually we found each other and we talked and it was we did we did talk in in a cafe and she gave me this most incredible interview about this tiny space that she operates in and she would be jailed for speaking to me with no shadow of a doubt. And we we actually did the interview quite near to Evin prison, which is where political prisons go, the University of Evin, because so many, you know, so many members of the intelligentsia are there, you know, so many doctors and professors. And the bravery of her to meet me and to continue to advocate against this, which has become a hugely embarrassing political issue for the government as well, for the regime. I mean, there's many different power centers. And I ended up meeting several of the women who were arrested as well. And they were defiant. I mean, they were okay, I'm going to do this again. We're going to keep doing this mm-hmm. until, until this happens. And so it became this massive issue ahead of the 2018 World Cup, and I actually met Sarah which is not a real name who one of the people who runs open stadiums and we we actually went to her first ever game which was also had the best ending for a game ever it was it was uh, Iran Morocco and Morocco scored an own goal in like the 96th minute and it was just you couldn't have I mean, you can script it. I know people say that. I mean, football (laughs) cliches will probably say, don't say you couldn't write it, but you couldn't write it. You know, it was just a wonderful ending to this story and moment. But of course, you know, you had like Sergio Ramos tweeting, you know, Infantino, absolutely nowhere. Like, did not speak out about these women when he was there. A complete moral black hole in this issue. Said he raised it privately. No one believes him. And one of the interesting things that open stadiums told me was that, you know, a lot of, Other female activists kind of looked down on her because she'd chosen football as the thing that she as the way of achieving greater rights for women. Whereas there, there are bigger issues about the inequality in the law. There's the fact that the hijab is compulsory. But for her, this was deeply important. And as it's turned out, when you tap into football, it has an international resonance in a way that perhaps women wearing the hijab doesn't, or certainly like not an all-encompassing kind of resonance across every type of country, every gender. And so to her created this international movement in a way. And it's, and it's worked. I mean, there have been times where there's been backwards and forwards, women have been let in and they've stopped it again. But there was a match a couple of weeks, ago, I think it was last week, Estéglal, where they let women in, buy tickets in big numbers. So it looks like it's, it's slowly changing. So it's the activists that previously looked upon this as something that, you know, is almost beneath them, mm. uh, see this as a, as a legitimate way of trying to secure rights for women which will lead to other rights
0: yeah and i think those parts of the books are actually some of the most moving parts the fact that just the sheer expectation that we have that if we want to go to a football game we can just go to a football Mm. game and these these women go along knowing that they will be arrested and who knows what could happen to them and yet they carried on there's a there's a quote about I think one of the women being, being told, oh, if you take a Syrian flag in I think you just pretend to be Syrian yeah. and get in no problems. And she was like, no, but I want to feel as though I can, as an Iranian, do this very basic thing. I mean, the funniest thing was when one of
1: the activists I was interviewing told me that when they were all arrested, they were all in the prison cell together. Some of them were dressed as men, some of them weren't, because the person I was talking to didn't go dressed as a man, but others others did attempt to and often you'd see women would then post their pictures online when they do it and they you know they've really gone to town on it like a really that's a really convincing beard that they've drawn on or like stuck on and you know the haircut and the way they kind of. and then uh, what she was saying is that they were then discussing with each other how best to pass yourself off as a man in, so that they don't get detected next time they were like mimicking walks and how to sit with you, like with the man spreading and stuff and so I love that idea that this in this like almost like you know um, usual suspects that they put all these people together but they make the thing that they I don't know who would be the Kaiser Soze in that in that, in that, <laughs> that analogy but they, you know they make the thing that they wanted to kind of avoid which is a better connected activist network and exchange of information that helps them do this in future but no doubt I mean England are playing Iran in the World Cup Iran a very strong team we, we will no doubt undermine you know we'll take them lightly no doubt this will be one of the biggest games in iranian football history they've got usa in this group as well like the political significance of this will not be lost on the regime and it won't be lost on the players either who want to kind of you know have an underdog status and give it a bloody nose but so this issue will come up again but particularly in england because once you've got a team like iran in your group a lot more journalists and people pay attention to it but to be honest in over the past I mean, I first saw women protesting outside the Azadi in 2006 when I first went. It was literally the first thing I saw when I went to a football match. You know, this is almost a 20 year, 15 year process. Mm. And so they're getting there. You know, I think it's the last country on earth for this, for this to happen and, you know, it has to end. But everybody from male fans, female fans, I mean, Masoud Sojahi, the captain, asked Hassan Rouhani, the, the president, please let women into the stadium when he had the chance. So there's a lot of will but it's a very complicated place and it's very difficult to, to get anything done.
0: Well, from one complicated place to another, let's go to Qatar and talk a little bit about that. And again, Qatar, really interesting context. The the way that sport is being used there in terms of, and I guess another tool of modernisation mm. in that sense, but almost in a sort of marketing ploy sense. Yeah. So That lots of sport being used all the time by the Qatari uh, government to raise the profile of, of Qatar. And one aspect of that is that they managed to get the World Cup now. I, We've already mentioned before you came on air that you get asked about corruption in yeah. the World Cup process. But what's your what's your take on Qatar getting the World Cup? Because in many respects, it feels like actually a natural move for FIFA to make in a lot of respects.
1: I mean, I wasn't surprised at all when they won. I wasn't surprised when Russia won. Because if you look at Blatter and his vision for world football, I mean, obviously now he's a busted flush, completely tainted, almost a, a joke figure now. but. If you look back and try and strip some of that away you know one of the big things was trying to move the power of football away from the centre of Western Europe and to try to democratise it somewhat, try to spread it to every corner of the earth. Uh, One of his first act as president was to approve palestine being a, a member of the a official member of fifa which is a remarkable thing I and mean, this is, there's a great story that jerome champagne tells me who's the he ran for fifa president but he was blatter's political consultant for a long while former french diplomat that him platini and blatter flew into the rafa airstrip together and drove the entire length of the Gaza Strip where they were greeted like heroes on the streets because this was a recognition that they couldn't get at the UN, they couldn't get in the international community. But here at FIFA, mm. you know, they, they are a country. They, they do have a flag that they have to fly and that other people have to respect. And so this is Blatter's thing. He wanted to spread the gospel and the Middle East was the last kind of place where a World Cup hadn't been held. So And also, you know, Russia again, probably the biggest country not to have held it as well. So it made sense in that respect, if you think about what he was thinking about where world football should go. Thinking back to when I first went to Qatar in 2005, <laughs> right, and the first time was to interview Marcel Desailly because they just started this new football league and they decided they were going to get all the big name players on their last year of their contract at the end of their career, like the Batastutas, the De Boer brothers, like all these, all these players, Marcel Desailly. Pep you know, Guardiola. Pep Guardiola. Well, I was originally supposed to go out to interview Pep Guardiola, but... He canceled because he was stuck in a snowstorm in Morocco, he told me. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so I I tracked down Desai and interviewed him. And you know, everybody had the same thing, right? They wanted, last season, no pressure, big money, one season, then you're out, right? But going there at the time, it just seemed like, what what did the Qataris want out of this, Mm. right? And then it became clear that one of the things from living in the UAE, living, living in Dubai, is that, especially in Dubai, they had stumbled across this idea that because they didn't have all, all the wealth, all the oil and gas is in Abu Dhabi, right? The seven emirates, the United Arab Emirates, all the power resides in Abu Dhabi. Dubai positioned itself as a kind of real estate hub, a tourism hub, business hub, mainly built on debt because it didn't have the you know, commodities to really underpin any of that. And part of that, to get people to come buy houses and go on holiday, you needed to advertise yourself. And they stumbled across this idea of the best way of doing that, the best billboards in the world is football, it's sport, it's tennis, it's it's cricket, it's golf, but it's football. And to build their brand, which they did incredibly successfully, so successfully that people, you know, still think that Dubai is a country in itself, right? Rather than the kind of subordinate little brother to Abu Dhabi within the UAE Federation and when they were doing this Qatar basically followed suit they started doing they followed their blueprint and they started doing exactly the same thing putting on tennis tournaments golf tournaments advertising internationally. And they wanted to host big events. This was a way to not only to build your nation uh, and to give it a kind of international reputation, but also diversify the economy away from one day not having, you know, the fabulous oil and gas wealth, which mm-hmm. I mean, it's mainly gas, not oil in, in, uh, in Qatar. And so Qatar kind of followed suit. And when I first went there, I just thought like, they they, they were talking about hosting the Olympics. And it's like, if you've spent any time in a golf summer, like you could probably walk for about five minutes before you drop dead. You know, you couldn't do any sport in a like 50 degree July summer in in Qatar. So the idea, it just seemed fab, they had these fabulous ideas,
0: very ambitious. And this is six years before the actual- Six years before the, the vote
1: for the World Cup. They hadn't talked about the World Cup yet. The UAE had, But it was... Yeah, it was, they had these, this incredible ambition to do these things and these bigger and better projects. But it just seemed there was one thing that was stopping it, which was that you can't have this in the summer. And so when they tried to, to, I think it was the 2000 and, which Olympics did they go for? Might've been 2020, but they went for one anyway. They didn't even get to the final round. I mean, it was just like, you can't move the dates. And so their bid kind of floundered because of that. But going back one of the interesting things was at that time, you know, regionally Qatar was, now it's almost seen as like a Bond villain compared to the other places but back then it was really you know very much seen as a reformist Mm. forward forward thinking reformist type of place you know you had this relatively new emir hamad who came to power in a like bloodless palace coup against his father in 1996 and got rid of straightaway censorship Mm. invested in Al Jazeera which of course does not report on what's going on in Qatar with any fairness but is now a well-respected international institution, was seen as a kind of the voice of of, of the Arab Spring and the revolutions that took place around the Middle East was talking about universal suffrage wanted to bring in a, a constitutional monarchy like the UK you know these are discussions that don't take place in Saudi they don't take place in the UAE you know so do you think then that the Qatar was like the
0: obvious if you're going to put a World Cup on in the Middle East you go for Qatar it's made... to be honest none of them was obvious
1: like because it just you couldn't think of a way of getting around. to me the obvious place to have a World Cup in the Middle East is Egypt you know you have a country where you possibly could have it in the summer I mean it's very hot but I mean it's not as hot as the you know middle of a desert um, you have a massive population crazy for football you've, if you've gone to a, a Cairo derby and unfortunately there hasn't been because now well because of the role of the ultras in the revolution they've been designated essentially like a terrorist organisation so but most football effectively fans have been kind of closed out of Egyptian football some of them have been allowed to back in but it's not like it was when you'd go to the Cairo International Stadium there'd be 100,000 people there it was just a magnificent thing but that would be the place to have it right and obviously the infrastructure would be huge they couldn't afford it but in terms of a place that would be it but they didn't have the money and they didn't have the ability to do it so the gulf did have the money but just unfortunately the terrible climate and i can't remember when i first heard that they were they were going to do it but it was like this 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 isn't gonna they can't this isn't gonna work come on i mean i remember they, they opened the aspire academy and I was like, why are they opening the Aspire Academy? This is like a you know glorified leisure center. And then Pele and Maradona turned up. I touched Maradona. I actually spoke to him, asked him he was brilliant. He, he started mentioning uh, Osama Bin Laden. He compared himself to Osama Bin Laden in front of a room full of like Qataris. And he was just like every- <gasps> and He was so charismatic, everybody could have like let him, let him get away with it. But they spent so much money getting these people over. But then when you look back, you realize that all that investment was leading up to that moment. This is all, very uh, strategic idea. This
0: is back in 2005, yeah. This
1: is 2005, then 2006, 2007. And then, I think it was in 2008, they announced they wanted to bid. And you know, then you realize that the, the way they went about winning the bid, which, you know, there's been tons of investigative stuff about the corruption around it, the money around it, and like bag men taking huge, you know, and that, that's part and parcel of FIFA's mm. bidding process. And they were no doubt as guilty as anybody else in that thing um presumably everyone is doing but yeah they are but what was different on this one was just the level the political level that this was at so that you had essentially the Spire academy was turning up right in countries where ex-co members happened to come from right the, the people that were going to vote on it mm. which you, obviously is an extraordinary expense that you'd have to go through to do it but it's extraordinarily clever thinking as well that this is how you try to kind of curry favor in a kind of plausible deniability about whether that's really the reason why you're doing that or there was a massive gas deal between Paraguay and and the Emir of Qatar right and it's like well where's that come from of course it's all all connected then you had the Qatar gate investigation into what's happening about the sale of Paris Saint-Germain uh, the crown prince now the current emir was sitting in on this meeting with Nicolas sarkozy and platini allegedly um where where there's been allegations he was asked about whether he would vote he was told to vote for qatar uh, and in return you know there's all, all sorts of benefits to the french economy and for psg in particular and so It was just the sheer political level and the political kind of cash like the amount of political currency they dropped in getting the world cup because they realized that with that and or they thought at the time that having that would be the ultimate country builder the ultimate brand builder and now that we've come through this Mm. kind of like almost been dragged through a hedge process of um, you know almost 12 years since it's happened maybe that might be the case but it's also the case that it brought this huge microscope onto the country mm. which i don't think it was prepared for and you know also has in some ways damaged its reputation internationally
0: this podcast is going to come out just before the world cup mm. kicks off so Looking back now, what do you make of like the Qatar World Cup?
1: I don't know, was it, was it Mao Tse Tung was asked about what the effects were of the French Revolution and he said it's too early to tell? I think it's like, <laughs> I don't know if that's a, that's a made-up story or not, but it's, it, it's too early to tell. I mean, it's been fascinating watching how Qatar's reputation changed because it got the World Cup and the kind of interest it got afterwards. And it showed the power of it, but also it shows I think, a lot of people's prejudice as well about about a middle eastern world cup and about an arab world cup i mean it has rightfully been pilloried for the kafala system which i mean there's a lot of great activists out there that were trying to tell the world that this one of the great economic crimes of the 21st century is taking place in the gulf and it's it's british companies it's western companies that are enriching themselves off this i mean i remember going to one massive british construction company that was building a mall in in dubai and found their workers living next door to this you know office with suvs and everything and they were living there was like sewage running through their offices people were crying because they they couldn't leave because their passports had been taken and they weren't being paid and that there it was common it was quite common amongst uh, the workers to go and kill themselves on the sheikh zayed road because if they were killed they would get blood money and they were worth more to their families dead than alive and i remember trying to write this story for, for like a, a british newspaper and they're like ah, i said the story's been done and in the end they wrote it for the big issue and it, now it's been done the, people didn't want to hear about it and th- this this was kafala the system of kind of ownership of your workers which gives absolute control um over them uh, destroyed and continues to destroy millions and millions and millions of lives what the world cup did was suddenly people took interest in it. And suddenly it was a stick to beat Qatar with. And as much as the kind of motivation for that, I think is questionable, the fact is that people now know what's going on there and it's forced Qatar to engage in a reform process which uh, no other middle eastern country has has attempted so saudi arabia it is far worse to be an indian worker in saudi arabia than it is in qatar it is far worse to be an indian worker in the uae than it is in qatar there is no reform process going on there anywhere like what's going on in qatar and there are you know i i, I talked to nick McGeehan quite a lot who's probably been the leading advocate of of workers from the UK and you know he's very very sceptical of of what's happened and I'm sceptical of what will happen after the World Cup when, when this microscope moves on but I also speak to a lot of I try to keep in touch with all the workers that I meet and WhatsApp is this beautiful thing. Wish I had it when I started, where you can keep up to date with people's lives and how they change and some people leave and then they come back and they go and have families and and they come back and the conditions of the people that I've spoken to, because they are the canaries in the coal mine for me, you know, they have improved and they do talk about the level to where it should be. Like you do still have an apartheid system. People, you know, they do live in camps Kept out of the cities right it's not like they can freely mix with other members of the population there is still kind of a, a very pervasive uh, racism a minimum wage even of 500 a month is still disastrous in a country like qatar you know it, it, it's just offensive in a country that's the richest country on earth so you know i'm glad in a way i'm glad they got it Because, again, like I said, this for me is one of the great crimes, economic crimes of the 21st century. And and it has highlighted it
0: in a way that it would never be in any other way. So just one final question for you and it's it's actually almost a question that I I don't want to ask because... (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's a question that I think ideologically I disagree with myself but I think one of the frustrations that I have whenever it comes to these sorts of ethical dilemmas with respect to the World Cup is why is it that the responsibility, the ethical responsibility, the burden always seems to fall on the people at the bottom? So as football fans going into a World Cup like this, raising questions about how should I feel about participating in what is essentially an activity that will make fifa a lot of money uh, we've already talked about how set blatter's model was to, yeah. to expand fifa to all the corners of the earth so this is just a, this is a, in many respects a big pr project yeah. you've talked about the the Kefala system yeah. and, and the fact that you know many migrant workers have died in the in the production of this of this world cup so i just wanted to talk to you a little bit about the that ethical aspect like how should we feel about the world cup i mean
1: i've got no easy answer because i'm i'm as conflicted about it as anyone else you know on the one hand i i get you know furious when i think about all the ethical conundrums that it raises but on the other hand some of the good that it's done. It completely is a byproduct by the way. No one planned it this way. They thought they could get away with it. FIFA thought they could get away with it. It was only because it was brought to their attention that they were dragged kicking and screaming to the reform process. But on the other hand, as someone who started out writing a book about Middle Eastern football because I saw, you know, obviously from a white westerners perspective, but it was still my perspective, right, that you know, this is a region that has, is so nuanced and you know, we have this extremely um, negative perception of the Middle East and its people. I mean, you can just look at how any number of the right wing press in the UK and how, you know, how Islam is demonized and how that's become, you know, from the English Defence League onwards has become almost a defining feature of, you know, far right populism. You know, I wrote a book that tried to counter that in some way that say that, you know, this isn't a place that's scary. It's beautiful, it's diverse. There's so much history there. there I mean, you know, there's science there that think it's in Baghdad. They knew accurately the distance between the, the earth and the moon whilst we were living in mud huts. You know, this is a place that's rich with culture and music and poetry. And, and I met almost unalloyed kindness everywhere that I went. And that part of me also wants people to go to see that like, well, what's Kat- well, Qatar is a fascinating country. Qatar is a fascinating place. It's not this barren. I mean, there is a, I mean, it's a very small place, it's very hot, but everywhere has a culture. And the history of Qatar is, 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 you know, I find that absolutely fascinating. And so it will be a completely different experience to watch football in the Middle East. And it wouldn't be as much of a kind of Arab experience as say an Egyptian World Cup which I think would be, one day I really would love to see
0: that if they let me in the country. FIFA need to get you on board with this because you seem quite up for an I, Egyptian Cup.
1: Well, I had I had a weird idea that it should be an Egyptian, Tunisian, Libyan World Cup, <laughs> but then just, you know, obviously the civil war happened and that was going <laughs> to, not that anyone would listen to me, but like, <laughs> but I was like, why not just instead of investing $200 million, billion on that, you know, if you really want to, build soft power, build a world cup in somebody else's country and spend it there. I mean, Qatar would be forever loved for something like that, you know, and it'd be cheaper than the money they spent trying to prop up the Morsi government. But um, so that side of me says that, you know, even a country that is as kind of unusual as Qatar, will give you a unique experience and and you by being there and the World Cup is almost like a Potomkin village anyway like I mean Russia was a bit like that you know you didn't really get to see the real Russia I mean the Russian friends I have there said like I mean even the police are smiling right you wouldn't see that they wouldn't let you do this in the streets normally you get a baton over the head you know so it was like it was like the best it could possibly be for a lot of Russians during that month and you know qatar will be a little bit like that but there will still be much more of a flavor like if you think about who's going to travel there right there's just going to be huge numbers of iranians there so I think it's going to be more of a persian world cup than a than an arab world cup but it will you'll get to sit, hear those sounds that that i kind of fell in love with when i when i started writing this book and so although i'm conflicted by it, I, I mean i'm gonna i'm gonna try and go and i know that's the go-to criticism for a lot of uh, like man city fans or uh, newcastle fans or uh, I mean, actually i don't speak french so i don't know if psg fans do this but like chelsea fans oh i bet you're going to the world cup aren't you as if like criticizing any the money but you know, I've seen this. I've been reporting on this process since 2005. I feel that, like, also it's got an end for me. Like, this is the end. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm done with Qatar after this, you know. And so, I want to see how it goes. And I don't think I'll have a hotel. My plan is to get a tent and camp somewhere because the weather's going to be great in November. In the, in the Gulf, is probably the only time you can really walk around outside. <laughs> so, so yeah. I mean, it's, it's a really tough question because I do understand how people should, you know, it is difficult to, to come to a moral conclusion by it and I'm still conflicted by it. But again, going back to why I do the things I do in the way that I do, the only way you really understand something is by standing there and, and breathing it in. And I think that's the same for this.
0: When Friday comes, the updated version is now out. It is How do people get hold of it?
1: With eBree, I think you can get it in shops. So I think <laughs> in Waterstones. And I mean, Amazon's the best way. I mean, I wrote a book that basically, you know, all billionaires are bastards. Although that's not the title of it. I wish i (laughs) Yeah, but yeah, (laughs) go give some money to Jeff Bezos and buy it off Amazon. Well,
0: James, thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you very much.